Father, as we now come to your word, we come as beggars who are hungry, who need to be nourished, and so we ask, Lord, for our daily bread, and ask that you would grant it to us in the study of your word. We pray that this time would glorify Christ and that it would strengthen your people. Teach us, Lord, during this time how greatly our need, how greatly we need Christ and how sufficiently he has atoned for our sins and made us right with you, all for his glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 4. Continuing our study of John chapter 4 today, we're actually going to be concluding our study of John chapter 4, which we started, I believe, at the beginning of July. Um, So yeah, it's been a while, Uh, but the entire fourth chapter of John has been about evangelism, and it has been loaded with good information. Uh, We've seen so far so many helpful, so many insightful principles. Uh, We saw that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Not that, uh, not that he incidentally went through Samaria, but that he had to go through Samaria. And while he was there, he had a conversation with a Samaritan woman by the well where he revealed himself to be the Messiah to this woman who was living in sin and who had no interest at all in spiritual matters. We saw her actually several times try to shake out of this conversation with Jesus. Uh, with, with no interest in spiritual matters, she clearly was not looking for a conversation um, about spiritual things. But that didn't stop Jesus from leading a conversation with her which related to her sin, which related to her need to worship as God instructs rather than by man's traditions, and, of course, also relating to her need to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And upon believing, she left Jesus at the well, and she ran off to tell everyone she knew to come and see Jesus. And so we saw last week, we saw scores of Samaritans come to Jesus and believe in him. And when they they asked him then to stay with them, uh, he stayed with them. We're told that he he spent two more days ministering to them, teaching them in in this Samaritan town by the well. So this brings us to some very um, important principles for evangelism. We've seen so many already, but we've got one more important, very important lesson to learn about evangelism. Let me start with this. I'll say, by the time I was in high school, which was in the late 80s, the scientific community at large had come to an overwhelming consensus that smoking was directly related to both lung cancer and heart disease. I mean, nobody, by the time I was in high school, nobody was even questioning it anymore. And to this very day, of course, we know the evidence continues to accumulate, it continues to mount, that smoking cigarettes leads to these deadly conditions, conditions that often result in a very slow, a very long, uh, excruciatingly painful death. Nevertheless, most of my closest friends in high school, even though they, they knew all this stuff, they still smoked cigarettes. Now, you should keep in mind, I, I ran with kind of a rough crowd, a rough and rebellious crowd at the time. 
but all the education that we had received did absolutely nothing to deter so many of my friends from smoking. And of course, this continues to be the case for millions of people. The, the tobacco industry is still alive and kicking and doing perfectly fine. Why is that when we have all this information that should convince somebody, you might not want to do this. Well, they say you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. You can fill people's minds with all kinds of information, all kinds of statistics, all kinds of gruesome fatalities. But if a person doesn't want to change, all that information is just going to go right past them. It's just meaningless to them. It doesn't change anything for them. And if this is the case with something like smoking, or any harmful habit really, it's certainly the case with believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. See, there are two approaches to evangelism. This is a great chapter to discuss this. There are two approaches to evangelism, basically. The first, probably the most common approach to evangelism, assumes that if we just present the unbeliever with enough information, with enough facts, uh, that if they take all this stuff into consideration, all these statistics, enough stories to substantiate the truth or the reliability of Scripture, we have this assumption that people will believe. And, and this is a major foundational assumption that guides the way a lot of people do evangelism. The second approach to evangelism is very different. Rather than assuming that if a person is confronted with evidence and statistics and convincing stories, uh, that the unbeliever will change his mind, the second approach seeks to remind someone that they are under the wrath of God as revealed in Scripture. And they have willfully and deliberately suppressed the truth about God in unrighteousness. That is what Scripture explicitly tells us about why people don't believe. It's not because there's not enough evidence. It's because they've suppressed the truth. Now, the second approach is really the only approach that is, uh, that is most thoroughly, at least, supported by Scripture. The reality of human nature is that a person will ignore what they know to be true for the sake of pursuing what they want to pursue. So, what is going to convince an unbeliever? What's going to convince somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus to believe? Many of you have probably talked with people who say that they would believe, they, they want to believe, they would believe if only they could witness a miracle. Have you ever heard somebody say that? There, there are famous stories of atheist professors uh, being so bold that they would, uh, in front of their class, they would say that if God exists, here's his chance to prove that it's real. He can prevent the professor from dropping his pen on the ground. He'll, he'll drop the pen on the ground and feel like he's made his point, that God doesn't exist. And yet, let me ask you this. What do you think that hypothetical professor would do if God actually did prevent the pen from being dropped? Do you think he's more likely to say, oh, I've been wrong about everything I believe, or do you think he's more likely to say, there's got to be some kind of scientific explanation for this. There's got to be a logical explanation, something physical that, that would explain why this happened. The scriptures actually give us the answer. The scriptures tell us which one he would choose. 
When Jesus tells the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, you'll remember that the rich man ends up in hell where he's in a constant state of conscious torment. And he wanted someone to go and warn his brothers that they would face the same fate if they did not believe, if they did not change. And so Jesus tells us that Abraham's response to this request was this. He said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them, brothers, let them hear them. Let them hear what Scripture has to say, in other words. And at this, the rich man starts to panic, knowing that his brothers, like himself, really don't care what the Scriptures have to say. And so he says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. That seems logical, doesn't it? If somebody were to, were to rise from the dead and give them evidence, give them a reason to repent, it seems logical that they would repent, right? I mean, someone raising from the dead. Is there greater reason, greater evidence than that? But what does Abraham say? Jesus ends the parable by telling us what Abraham's response is. It's, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, in other words, if they won't yield to the authority of Scripture. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. See, the greatest evidence, the greatest evidence won't cause the unbeliever to believe. It just won't. So that brings us back to the question that we started with. What will convince the unbeliever to repent and believe? And the answer is only the grace of God, friends. Only the grace of God. The, the, the truth is that even the greatest miracle will not convince someone who won't believe the Scriptures. See, the root of unbelief is not a lack of evidence. The root of unbelief is willful rebellion against God and against His authority over them. The root of unbelief is the love of sin. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus back in chapter 3. So, so which approach would be best for evangelism? Presenting evidence, including miracles, or showing them the authority of Scripture? Presenting Scripture as authoritative over the person. See, the, the, the evidential approach puts the unbeliever in the position of authority whereby they are the one who becomes the judge over whether the Scriptures are or are not true, partially true, or not true at all. But the second approach doesn't put the unbeliever in a position of authority. It puts the Scriptures in a position of authority, showing the person that they are under the just condemnation of God as a result of their rebellion and their refusal to believe. Few passages in Scripture articulate this principle of man's unwillingness to believe apart from the grace of God with as much clarity as the passage that we're going to be looking at today. As we look through this passage today, we're going to see Jesus' frustration with people who won't believe unless they see the miraculous, unless they see something really spectacular. And we'll also see the way that Jesus stretches and blesses even the weakest true faith. But the point of our passage today is simply this. It's that Jesus wants you to have a steadfast faith, not because of what he can do, not because of what he offers, but because of who he is. I'll say it again. Jesus wants you to have a steadfast faith, 
a mature faith, not because of what he can offer you, not because of what he's capable of doing, but because of who he is. He is fully God. He's the, knee, he's the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So we're going to start looking at, uh, by looking at verses 43 to 45, and we'll see uh, Jesus leaving the region of Samaria, which is where we saw him ministering for two days before. So let's continue in verses 43 to 45. John writes this, After the two days, he went forth from there into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. Now, that is kind of a confusing passage, isn't it? I mean, Jesus has all this success in Samaria. We've seen, you know, scores of converts there, scores of people believing in him. And then he leaves after just two days. And we read that the reason that he leaves is to go back to the region of Galilee. And we're specifically told why he went to Galilee, of all places. Because a prophet has no honor in his own country. That doesn't exactly sound like a reason to go to Galilee, does it? If anything, it probably sounds like a reason to stay out of Galilee. To to go someplace else where, where he will have honor. But this isn't the end of the confusion because in the very next verse, in verse 45... We're then told that the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. Now, this is the way John writes. He he writes in circles. He'll say something, he'll, he'll give a story, then he'll follow that with another story or maybe another two stories, and then he'll come back full circle. He's bringing us full circle now from where we started at the end of chapter 2, where we saw Jesus performing signs and miracles at the Passover feast, and people were believing in Jesus, but they were believing him with a shallow, superficial faith that he would not receive, that he rejected. It was a faith that was based on what Jesus offered them, what he was capable of doing, rather than being a faith that was based on who he is. But this also brings us back to the beginning of chapter 4. If you've got your Bibles open, look, look back at the beginning of, of chapter 4, verse 3. John tells us that Jesus left Judea and went, again, went away again into Galilee. But to get to Galilee, from where he was, he had to pass through Samaria. We've already seen he didn't have to, but it was the Father's will. So yes, he did have to. Samaria was something of a a layover on his journey. It might have seemed like a good idea for him to stay in Samaria since he was having so much success there. People were coming to him. People were believing in him with a faith that, that he accepted. But Jesus came to do the will of the Father, and thus it didn't matter what things looked like on the surface. Aren't we prone to think that way? I mean, think about it for just a second. We think that if we don't find success at something, that we should try a different way. And we think that if we have success by doing things a certain way or doing things in a certain place, we should stay where we are and keep doing what we're doing. I mean, anybody ever been fishing? Anybody have your spot? You know, where you know that if you cast 20, 30 yards off, you're going to get a bite. 
And it's the same, same thing here. That's how we think with like everything. But there's a principle here that very much relates to evangelism, which is found between the proverbial lines, and it's this. Success is not measured by numbers in ministry. Success is not measured by numbers in ministry. It's measured instead by faithfulness to God's will. See, if Jesus would have stayed in Samaria... He would have disobeyed the Father's will because the Father's will was for him to go to Galilee. So it doesn't matter how many people would have believed in him if he was being disobedient to the Father's will. We would no longer have a perfect substitute to atone for our sins if he had disobeyed the Father's will. So his ministry, no matter how many people would have believed, would have been a failure. Would have been a failure. See, we're quick to to share the gospel with somebody, and when they, when they don't believe, we're very quick to just say, okay, I'm going to shake the dust off my feet. I'm done here, and to move on. We give up on people because we're not seeing the type of success that we think that we should be seeing as we share the gospel. And while there is a time for doing that, there is a time for shaking the dust off your sandals, we must not measure our success on the number of people who are believing, on the number of people who are being converted. Our job is not to convert people. Our job is not to convince someone to believe. That's something only God can do. That's God's job. Our our job isn't to convince people. That's something only God can do. He is the one who must remove the veil from their heart. Our job is simply to share the gospel message faithfully with people. Often, if not usually, more than once, More than once. But before we move on, we should deal with this apparent contradiction that we see here in the text. Jesus says that a prophet has no honor in his country in verse 44, but then verse 45 tells us that the Galileans received him. It seems like a contradiction. The resolution for that is actually so much simpler than we might realize at first. First of all, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all also record uh, Jesus testifying of this proverb. And in each of their accounts, it's in reference to Jesus' rejection by the citizens of Galilee, which was home field for Jesus. That's where he was from. That's the region he was from. But secondly, just because he wasn't, uh, just because he was received doesn't mean he was believed. Just because he was received doesn't mean he was believed. Remember that at the end of chapter 2, people were really impressed with him. They liked him, but they didn't truly believe. The Galileans, we're told, were at least some of these people. They were at the feast. So if the people didn't believe him, they may have received him, but they didn't honor him. So you can't honor him without believing in him. And this is all going to be fleshed out more in the remainder of the passage ahead. But why did knowing that the Galileans would not honor him cause him to go to Galilee? Again, I think the answer is actually simpler than we may realize. I mean, this is the whole point. He, he went because that's where the lost were. He went because that's where the lost were. He, he went to Galilee because that's where the gospel was necessary. So the question that this causes us to ask ourselves is, where can we go? Where can we share the gospel? Where is it necessary? Where do you expect, here's an important question, where do you expect to meet the greatest resistance to the gospel? 
Maybe your workplace. Maybe out in front of Planned Parenthood. How about just the checkout counter at the grocery store? The checkout counter at the grocery store. The simplest of places. Because the place where you expect the most resistance is probably the place where it's most needed. Keep that in mind. But Jesus also went because, again, it was the will of the Father. How did Jesus know that it was the will of the Father? Well, I mean, the most obvious answer here is that Jesus is God, right? Uh, so, so, of course, he knows what the Father's will is. But beyond that, the Old Testament scriptures predicted that this would be the place where Jesus would minister, where Jesus would go. The prophet Isaiah wrote this in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. He said, There will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. What land's he talking about? Galilee of the Gentiles. That's all written about the Messiah ministering in Galilee. Now, there's no prophecy that's specifically written about me or about you and where we will go. But the principle here is that the way to know God's will is to know God's word. You want to know what God's will is for your life? You need to know God's word. If you're willing to obey God based on the authority of his God-breathed, his inspired revelation, his infallible word, the Bible, then you have everything that you need to bring the gospel to people who need it. So Jesus went. And he went knowing the kind of rejection that he would be facing as he went in the place that he was going. So we're going to start to see that in the passage that follows. Let's look at verses 46 to 54. John continues writing, Therefore he, Jesus, came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go. Your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. Now, he was, as he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. Then they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives, and he himself believed, and his household, his whole household, This is, again, a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. So John reminds us twice in this passage that this was not Jesus' first trip to Cana. Uh, Once again, we're coming full circle from where we started in the end of chapter 2, where Jesus performed his his first miracle at the beginning of chapter 2, turning water into wine at the wedding feast. And we see that he finishes this passage once again by reminding us that this is Jesus' second time through Cana. But John goes beyond just reminding us in verse 4. Instead, he wants to make sure that we're 
comparing the two. That, that we're looking at both of them and seeing what they might have in common. So compare them. Look at both of them. Remind, remind us that these are, these are the same area where these two miracles happened. A.W. Pink notes in his commentary that there are actually seven uh, distinct similarities between the first miracle, turning water into wine, and this second miracle, which we should make note of. I'll just go through them quickly. We don't want to spend too much time on this. But the first similarity is that both of them are third-day events. Both of them are third-day events. Chapter 2, verse 1 starts off by telling us, on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And then we were just told that Jesus left Samaria after two days of ministering there, thus making this the third day. Second, both miracles involve a light rebuke of the one who is requesting a miracle. In the first case, you'll remember Jesus rebuked Mary. Uh, in the second one here, he rebukes the royal official. Third, we see an obedient response in uh, following the rebuke made by the person who was rebuked in each case. Fourth, in both miracles, all Jesus did was speak. All he did was speak and the miracles were done. Fifth, both narratives include a servant who reveals what has taken place. Sixth, those who witness the miracles believe. In the first miracle at the wedding, it was the disciples who believed. And in this one, it was the royal official and his whole household who believed. And finally, seventh, each narrative concludes by reminding us of the sequence of the miracle. Chapter 2, verse 11 says, this is the beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. And chapter 4, verse 54 says, this is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. So there are some great similarities here, and they're, they're very significant, but there's also one enormous difference between them, and it is completely obvious. And that is that the first occasion where the first miracle took place was a joyous occasion. It was a wedding. It was an uplifting narrative. The second miracle in Cana happens in the least joyous, most dreadful occasions, the eve of the death of a child. This man knows that his child is going to die if he doesn't get help. He doesn't go to a doctor. He goes to Jesus. So first, in the first one, we see joy, and in the second, we see deep sorrow. Now, there's a very much needed application when we compare and contrast these two miracles. The message that we, that we can get when we hold these two miracles up and compare and contrast them is that Jesus is there for us both in our joyful times and in our times of greatest sorrow. He's with us in the best times. He's with us in the worst times. In fact, he has a place for us in every single situation, in every circumstance that we face in life. If you will fellowship with him in times of joy, he will make your joy fuller. Fellowship with him in times of distress, and he will bring you a comfort and a peace that you can't find anywhere else but in him. And so as we go through this passage, we're introduced to, strangely, an, another nameless character. Did you notice that? It's another nameless character. The last one was the Samaritan woman at the well. She's a believer, but we're not given her name. And here again, he's a believer, but we're not given his name. This one is simply referred to as a royal official. Now, this royal official probably served in King Herod's court in his administration. It's possible that he was a prince, but whatever the case, 
he's a man that we, that we know, we can know for sure, has just a ton of power, a ton of influence over the land. And apparently, he heard all about Jesus' miracles, which were performed at the Passover feast back at the end of chapter 2. And so, given what he heard about Jesus, he comes to Jesus when his son is about to die, and he begs Jesus, he implores Jesus, to come and save his son, knowing that his son was about to die. And Jesus' response is one which seems to be filled with frustration, and perhaps rightly so. He says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Now, if you've got your Bible open, and if you're looking at that verse, uh, you'll notice that the word people should be in italics. Uh, which indicates that the translators inserted this word in there to make it easier for us to understand. See, our singular you and our plural you are indistinguishable, uh, but there's a distinction that's being made here in the Greek. He's using plural you, so they included the word people so that we understand. He's not just talking to the royal official. He's talking to everybody who is in earshot. He's talking about the people in the region of Cana or Galilee in general. So Jesus wasn't exclusively frustrated with this individual man, the, the royal official. Rather, he was simply challenging everybody who was within earshot to examine their motivation for coming to him. Were they coming to him because of what he was able to do? Was that the basis of their faith? Was that the basis on which they were coming to him? Or were they coming to him because of who he is? See, coming to Jesus only because he offers some kind of benefit to us personally, that's really a way of making him into an idol. He's not a genie in a bottle that comes out just when we want him, when we summon him. No, and he won't honor that. So Jesus isn't just having a bad moment here. Rather, he's gently poking at, he's, he's gently rebuking the shallow faith that so many of the people had, similar to what we saw at the end of chapter 2. But as we've already noted, the royal official doesn't get upset. He doesn't lose his temper. That was one of the similarities between the two. After being rebuked, Mary humbled herself. After being rebuked, the royal official humbles himself. So he says, uh, humbly, he says, Sir, come down before my child dies. Now the word sir, that's a sign of respect, right? Right? That's the way we use the word sir. It's a sign of respect. But it actually might indicate more than just respect because the Greek word here is the same Greek word that gets translated as Lord. Lord. It's the same Greek word that Paul uses in Romans 10.9, for example, when he writes, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So, which way did the royal official mean it? Did he mean just sir, because it can be used that way, or did he mean it as lord? I'll just leave that for you guys to wrestle with, for you to consider. But what we have to see is that this royal official would be a person who has everything. All the things that you might aspire to be in life when you're a child, to have power, to have influence, to have stability. This man had it all from a worldly perspective. He could have become just defiant with Jesus, and he could have ordered this, this humble carpenter named Jesus to come right now and to serve him as he instructed. He had the authority to do that. But instead of doing that, he humbles himself. 
And what we, what we also must see is that this man is very different from the Samaritan woman. She wasn't a powerful person. She became an influential person as she went and told people to go and see Jesus, but she was not a powerful person. She was very lowly, very humble. So, so these two people, the Samaritan woman and this royal official, these people have very little in common, uh, you know, just from a, a flesh perspective, you know, looking at, it, looking at it physically. They belong to totally different social classes, but they both had a need for Jesus. And Jesus ministers to each of them. So Jesus simply says to the man, go, your son lives. And what is the royal official's response? What would your response be? Say you're, you're, you've traveled 25 miles on foot or horseback or whatever, and Jesus says, go, he lives. I mean, I, I think my response might be, well, do you want to come with me and see? I, I mean, are, are you sure that he's healed? How can you know that he's healed? But no, that's not what he says. The royal official simply believes. So we should be surprised. There, there's a shocking element to this about the, the depth of this man's faith. Because e- even though it's initially a weak faith, which is why he gets a, a mild rebuke, it's a real faith. It, it, it comes to him shallow, it comes to him weak, but it is a real faith. And Jesus intends to use this situation to make the man's faith stronger and deeper. And so the royal official ends up walking away confidently, trusting that Jesus spoke what was true. That his son lived. Even before he saw evidence of it. And and that's what real faith does. Real faith isn't built on evidence. Evidence will never change somebody's heart. It takes a miracle to change a heart of stone. Only God can do that. Now, we've all heard the, the saying, seeing is believing. But this story teaches us something. It teaches that that's not the case when it comes to faith. See, in God's kingdom, seeing isn't believing. Rather, believing is seeing. Believing is seeing. And there's a very big difference between those two things. That's why the hypothetical professor who challenges God to prevent the pen from falling to the ground wouldn't believe in God if God were to prevent the pen from falling. He'd simply look for another explanation. The Bible tells us in no uncertain terms that faith comes by what? Hearing. Faith comes by hearing, not seeing, by hearing. And that's exactly what happens with this man. He hears what Jesus has to say, and he believes. He doesn't see the proof. He doesn't see the evidence of his son being healed. But he hears Jesus' words of assurance that his son lives, and that is enough for him. He's convinced. He believes. And thus he heads home to Capernaum, which is about 25 miles away, which can be a four- to six-hour journey, depending on whether he walked or traveled on horse. But notice something. As, as we look at this text, I want you to notice something. Notice that the conversation that he, t- uh, that he has with his servants takes place when? The next day. They say it was yesterday. So he decided to stay overnight someplace, which tells us he wasn't even in a rush to get home. 
he decided to, to get some business done someplace else before he headed home. He believed what Jesus told him and didn't feel the need to rush home and make sure with his own eyes. <clears throat> so this royal official had instantly, he, he instantly moves from the kiddie pool of faith to the deep end. His is, is no longer a, a shallow faith. It's a deep faith. It's a steadfast faith. That's a strong faith. And not only is his faith strengthened, but we are told that his whole household believes. And actually, that's the most beautiful part of this whole story. What a deep joy it is to see our spouses and to see our, our children believe in and, and walk with the Lord, to grow in their walk with him. And in all my years, friends, in all my years, I'm 47 years old, I believe that this is the most joyful thing I've ever experienced. And I pray that you would also know that joy, both with your, with your parents, with your spouses, with your children. Children, they're a blessing from the Lord, and a child who loves the Lord, that's just a blessing that's beyond words. But let's not miss this. There's a healing behind the healing here. Yes, Jesus physically heals the man's son. But the whole household is healed spiritually. The son was raised from near death to life physically. But the whole house was raised from death to life spiritually as well. What grace. What glorious, marvelous, unmerited, sovereign grace. This man came to Jesus with, with a request for one member of his household. But, but he gets far, far more than he asked for. Far, far more than he had imagined. But back to the story. Let's think about this for a, a minute. If any ordinary man would have said what Jesus said, go, your, your son lives, I mean, it would have been foolish for the, for the royal official to have believed him, right? I mean, if I, if I just go you know, up to some stranger that I don't know and say, hey, uh, my, my, my wife is sick, could you come help me? And he says, go, she's fine. Uh, it would be pretty stupid of me to say, oh, okay, you know, if this is just some ordinary guy. Nobody would believe those words coming from just an ordinary man. But we're not talking about an ordinary man here. We're talking about Jesus Christ. We're talking about the one who is fully God and fully man. To believe him, to take him at his word with no evidence, just based on what he says, nothing but his word to stand on is actually the most reasonable, the most rational thing in the world to do. See, there's a wonderful principle for us here that has really nothing to do with evangelism, but which has everything to do with experiencing hardships in life, which all of us are bound to face on multiple occasions throughout life. It's part of life. We recognize that. And that principle is this. We must take Jesus at his word and let him work as he sovereignly chooses to operate, knowing two things, three things. Number one, he's sovereign. Number two, he's all-powerful. Number three, he's always good. And if we can take those three things and believe those three things, then however he chooses to operate, we can be okay with. We can be okay with. He, he wants us 
to bring our feelings to him. He wants us to bring our desires to him. He wants us to leave them with him, trusting that he has heard us and that he's powerful enough to do something. But he's also wise enough to not do something that we might be expecting him to do if he knows that there's something better apart from what we're imagining in our own minds. But either way, whatever he does, he's good. He's good. He promises us that he's good. Can you just take him at his word? Because that's what faith does. And he promises us that there will not be a single moment, there will not be a single circumstance in our lives that does not have a good purpose. That he is not using, there is nothing in our lives that he's not using to conform us to Christ's image, which is our greatest good. Friends, this man's despair was dealt with not by seeing what Jesus could do, but by simply taking his problems to Jesus and leaving it in Jesus' hands. And you and I can have the same comfort in the midst of times of despair. We don't know how he'll handle things necessarily, but we know that he's good. We know that he loves us. We know that there is no greater love than the love that he has for us. And we know that he has promised that he's causing all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Everything works for our good in some way and for his glory. Now, we might not see that in the here and now. In fact, we probably won't. But we will. So we believe it not based on what we see, we believe it based on what he tells us. And if you are in Christ, this comfort is yours. We've seen Jesus ministering to the rich. We've seen Jesus ministering to the poor, to the high, to the lowly, to men, to women, young and old, Jews and Samaritans, the religious and the irreligious. And John has thus showed us something that's very important, friends. And that is, that the gospel is for everyone. The good news of Jesus reconciling us to God, taking our sins upon himself, that's something that everybody needs to hear. It's for everyone. Everyone needs it. Nobody is beyond needing it every hour, every minute. And so I pray that it would be, I pray that it would be yours. That, that you would see your need for Christ, but that you would then look beyond yourself and see others who need it as well. Your parents, your spouse, your children, your neighbors. Listen, friends, if you have never believed in Jesus, I cannot allow you in good conscience to leave here today without telling you that the word of God reveals that you are under God's wrath because you have not believed in his one and only son. But just as Jesus granted life to the royal official's son and his whole household, if you'll believe in him, he will grant you life as well. He will grant you eternal life. So I beg you today, if you have not come to Christ, if you have not believed in Jesus, to come to him, not because of some personal benefit he might offer to you, but because of who he is. He's fully God, fully man, the only mediator between God and man, the only one who can reconcile us to God. And friends, if you have repented and believed, I urge you this, pray for your whole household to know the same salvation that you've come to know. 
I mean, I mean beg your children to, 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 to love God and beg God to save your children if you don't care for their souls, if you don't disciple them, who's going to? Who's more likely to than you? Teach them that walking with the Lord needs to be their greatest priority in life. And you do that, by the way, by modeling it for them. How do you teach somebody that gathering as a church is important? By bringing them to gather with the church. How do you teach them that it can take second place? By saying, oh, there's something else that's going on today. We can go to church next week. It's, it's important. Kids, there are things that are caught and things that are taught. And we need to know that as parents. That they're watching. And they're, they're going to follow the, the, the example that we set for them. If we want our children, if we want our, our neighbors to walk with Jesus, we have to start by living out our high calling before them that they would see the power of the gospel working in our lives right in front of their eyes. But don't stop there. Because seeing isn't believing. We must also verbally articulate the reason for the hope that we have, and that reason is the gospel. It's because Jesus came to save sinners. He didn't come to save the righteous. He came to save sinners, and that includes me, that includes you, that includes everyone who will repent and simply trust entirely in him and the work that he accomplished on our behalf for our salvation. And we do that, and then we leave the results of sharing our testimony and laboring for somebody's soul in the hands of the one who can do something about it. We leave it in God's hands, trusting that Jesus is willing and able to save all who will humbly come to him, whether they come in weak faith or strong faith. Let's pray. Our most gracious Father, we thank you for sending your one and only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived the life that we should have lived, perfectly abiding by your word, perfectly upholding what you command. And we confess, Lord, that we have not. And Jesus also died the death that we should have died because we know that the wage of sin is death. But he offers us life. He offers life to all who will come and believe in him. So we thank you for the work that Jesus did. We thank you for his obedience. We thank you, Lord, that when he died, he took our sin upon himself. And in exchange, he gave us his perfect righteousness that we may stand before you in his righteousness rather than our lack of righteousness and be forgiven. Thank you that reconciliation with you is possible by believing in him. And thank you, Lord, that you have opened the eyes of our hearts to believe. We pray that our testimony would result in people believing. Not because we're able to convince them that we would have something to boast in, but simply because of your sovereign goodness. Lord, help us, strengthen us, convict us to boldly share the gospel to boldly share the love that we have freely been given, not of our own doing, entirely by your doing, that Christ would be glorified in our lives. We also pray, Lord, that, our, um, that our, our light would shine. We pray that we would live out the faith that we proclaim, 
that we would not be hypocrites. Father, we confess that we are hypocrites. But by your grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit working within us, we're becoming more like Christ. So we pray, Lord, that the world would see that. And we pray, Lord, that as we share the gospel, that you would grant much fruit in the harvest, all for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.